we are going to make our way to Hebrews chapter 5. So if you guys want to take out your Bibles uh, and head towards the fifth chapter of Hebrews as we continue our journey uh, through this beautiful letter. As you guys make your way that direction, uh, let me just remind you that we're now, I believe, six weeks into our study through Hebrews, and you probably all have memorized that the theme of the book is Jesus is better. And so the question no doubt comes up, if Jesus is better, what is he better uh, than, you might ask? And so the answer to that we see uh, beginning right off the bat, chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is better than the prophets. These were the, uh, the very mouthpiece of God throughout the Old Testament. And uh, we find that Jesus in these uh, last days is better than the prophets. And through chapters uh, 1 and 2, we see the writer communicating that Jesus is better than angels, the messengers of God. And then we transitioned over these last couple weeks in chapters 3 and 4, and we see the proclamation that Jesus is better even than Moses, who was the very embodiment of the picture of the law. But what we find is, as Christ communicated in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so the the messenger, the one who would give the law, would not be uh, any better than the one who is actually the fulfillment of the law. And what Jesus said there is that uh, the law will by no means pass away until every jot and every tittle is completely fulfilled. And so he is the, the fulfillment of the law. And what we transition to at the end of chapter 4 is, as he's the fulfillment of the law, uh, is this idea that Jesus is our better high priest. And we're going to cover that over these next several chapters. Chapter uh, 5 through 7 is that he is better than the priesthood. And I think it's important to communicate as we say uh, better than. It doesn't mean that Christ is uh, walking around with his head puffed up high, uh, arrogant. Uh, but instead, this idea of better than is to communicate one of superiority. He, is, he has supremacy over uh, all these things we've uh, covered so far. And so he is superior to the priesthood. And the beautiful promise inside of that is, if he is superior than the priesthood, what he has now allowed us to have, what he has cleared the way for, is for us to have access. We looked at this at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, where the writer communicates, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That as he, is, as he has become a better than a high priest, he's actually cleared the way for us to go into a place we were not allowed access previously. It had to go through the high priest, any communication, any offering of sacrifice. And so Christ is now made a way as the veil was torn. We now have the ability to go directly to the Father, to climb right up on his lap and in any time we are in need. And so with all that in mind, the readers no doubt understanding this need for an intermediary, that we couldn't approach the true and living God on our own. He's trying to communicate that Christ has become that high priest, that intermediary on our behalf. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, we continue that idea. For every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. 
And so as a high priest is this intermediary, this go-between between God and man, he is also the go-between between man and God. The two functions of a high priest. He would represent God to the people and the people to God. That's what we see here in verse 1. He is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. He's a representative of the people to God as he offered sacrifices. But then, notice with me at the end of this verse, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he represents God to the people as well. So there's this dual relationship, and all this comes about through divine appointment. He was divinely appointed. He couldn't have just raised his hand and say, hey, I feel like being high priest today. It was a very specific and divine appointment that had to occur. We continue in verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so now we see is the high priest would be one who is compassionate. And how is it that the high priest can be compassionate? Because not only does he offer sins or offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, but the high priest, the human high priest, would also offer a sacrifice for himself. As he walked into the Holy of Holies, he was coming in with a sin nature just like we have. And so it's Christ is our better than high priest. He doesn't have this same sin nature we have, and yet because of what he was subjected to, he can be compassionate on us. So here the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with an understanding of where we're coming from. The understanding that we are broken, hurting group of people, that we are in need of a physician. And I think it's important to understand our calling as a church uh, is one of the paramedics. That far too often what happens in a church setting is uh, we get it misaligned. We think that we're called to be the police. That we're called to investigate every situation. we got to look into it. We quickly become the God squad wanting to look into all the sin issues that are happening in someone's life when the reality is uh, we're actually called to be a part of the paramedic crew. We're called to come in and stop bleeding, not conduct a formal investigation. And so this need for a doctor, of a doctor, is evident. But if we're not careful, we get the the need misaligned. That we can look at a, a pastor, a Bible teacher, a missionary, a children's church worker, a worship leader, and we can say, um, are you the physician? Are you the physician? Can you work on me? Can you help me? When the reality is, um, none of us are physicians. There's only one physician. Uh, For the rest of us, because immediately the question is going to be, okay, Mr. Pastor, then what is your position? Um, I'm in the hospital uh, just like you are. I've got hurts and flaws, and and I've got a need of surgery no differently than you. The, The difference is, I've just been in the hospital a while. I know where the cafeteria is. I know where the bathroom is. I know where the coffee's at. I can tell you how to get places, but I'm not the doctor. I, I can just point you to the one who is. And so it's important to understand that the only physician is Jesus and him alone. 
And this is really what boils down to the heart of any ministry. Is that We don't need to have all the answers. We don't have to come to the table and have every single answer. What we have to do is be able to point people to King Jesus and say, hey, look, I'm going to go right along with you. I've got a hospital gown on no different than you. I'm trying to keep that sucker tied at the back just like you are. Afraid something's going to hang out, right? So we're, we're going together to find the doctor, to communicate uh, with him and him alone. And so pointing people to their need for Christ, no different than our own need. He continues in verse 5 saying, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. A quote there from Psalm 2. And as he also says in another place, this is from Psalm 110, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In verse 7, Who in the, lat, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, verse 8, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, what is being communicated here is that Jesus Christ was appointed, a divine appointment given by God, communicated through the Old Testament that you are my son, my only begotten son, and I'm making you a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And yet, as a son, as a high priest, uh, he offered up uh, prayers and supplications, vehement cries. What is he referring to? But that night in Gethsemane. That here is Jesus, the, the great high priest, the Son of God, and he is on his knees crying out to the Father uh, there in the garden. Vehement cries from Jesus. So much so that great droplets of blood he actually sweats out, which if you look it up uh, scientifically is possible. It's a word I can hardly pronounce. It starts with an H. That's as far as I can get. But, but the, this is caused, according to my research on the internet, so it's got to be true, is uh, from excessive stress. That a person can sweat out great droplets of blood when they are pressed down, when excessive amounts of stress are being put upon them. So here's Jesus with excessive amounts of stress. As he is thinking about, he is considering when all the sins of all the people who will ever come, who have ever lived, are now going to be placed upon him. That sounds like a lot of stress. But we learn a couple things as we look at him in the garden. Here's the first thing we learn is uh, he shows us the purpose of prayer. As he is praying there in the garden, what he shows us very clearly is uh, prayer is not about me getting my will done, but about my will lining up with the will of the Father. What does Jesus say? Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And here's this beautiful promise. If we pray to have our will lined up with the Father's will, what you'll find is that your will will actually become His. <laughs> or excuse me, His will will become yours. I said that backwards. His will will become your will. And here's the beautiful part. If His will becomes your will, guess what? A prayer gets answered. His will is always done. And so as we begin to pray, not my will, but thy will be done, uh, his will all of a sudden is going to start to happen in my life. But I want to be careful to point out um, there will be a crucifixion of the flesh that has to take place. And that's the part that usually trips people up. 
My flesh is going to have to die in order for this to take place. But if we only focus on the crucifixion, if I only focus on the death that has to take place, I miss out on the joy. This is where the writer was communicating in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, if I only focus on the cross, I don't uh, get to experience the joy. I miss out on the real purpose behind all this. And so for Jesus... He was able to focus on the joy, even though he despised the cross and the shame, because we, who sit right here, get to be the joy that was set before him. But what happens is so often we find ourselves frustrated in prayer when it's the other way around. We'll, we'll, we'll pray, I, I prayed for this thing, and I've asked God for this. I've asked him to change this, and, and now I'm just not going to pray anymore. Well, it's because my prayers have to do uh, all with me. It's all about me getting my will. But when we submit ourselves to the will of the Father, I can say, Lord, whatever your will is, I know I can trust it. Why do I know I can trust it? Because here's what James communicates in James chapter 1, verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, which comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That means if God has willed it in my life, he is going to make it good. It is going to be a good gift. If he promises it, he's going to see me through it. The other thing to notate from Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane is that God sent Jesus to die for us. I know that sounds simple, but I think often we can get it in our mind when we read through Scripture that somehow God is wrathful or He is angry or He is vengeful. But notice with me, He sent His Son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He willingly gave the Son. And the Son was willing to be obedient to that gift. And, and what we also find about Christ in Scripture is that he was the one who was also qualified to be that sacrifice. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's got the credibility to be the sacrifice we need. He can step into place for you and I. Now, for many of us, we think about that and we consider it, and you go, I just cannot wrap my mind around that. That the God of the universe would literally give himself on my behalf. I would encourage you to read uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, And without, great, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The Apostle Paul says, look, this is a great mystery, that God would manifest himself in the flesh. Why on earth would he do that? It, it's, it can only be explained through love, that he loved us so much, that he, he was willing to step into our place to lay his life down on our behalf. That's why he came in the first place, 
Jehovah is salvation. That's the very name of Jesus. Now we continue in verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so here is Jesus who is perfected and has now become the author of salvation to all who obey. Perfectly qualified to be our high priest. Now for the Hebrews who are listening to this, they would be asking questions. How is he qualified? How could this man be qualified to be our great high priest? If you listened through and you were taking notes at all, you would have noted that through these first nine verses, he has given us his qualifications. First of all, he was divinely appointed. It's important to understand that a divine appointment is necessary. He is divinely appointed, right? Now, oftentimes in church today, we think about ordination being a divine appointment. But I want to make sure you understand that an ordination is simply confirming an appointment that has already been made by God. That I could not divinely appoint myself had I not been called into ministry. And I think so often this is where we get it wrong. That people think this is just a good vocation to go into. This is not merely a vocation. This is a divine appointment. And what I mean by that is in May of 2016, as I've communicated with you all, I was called into ministry by God. Nobody can take that away. Nobody can change my mind on that experience. And yet, for the next two plus years, I was not officially ordained until October of 2018. And so the question is, were you a pastor or were you not a pastor? I would share with you that I was fulfilling all the roles and functions as a pastor after my calling prior to my ordination. The ordination was only the the elders at our church saying, we can see what God is doing in your life. We can see that you've been divinely appointed and we're going to lay hands and pray over you. And so it's, it's vital to have a divine appointment. That's where I'm going with this. Now, the second thing to note is that Jesus was human. He was both fully God and fully human, and this is vital when it comes to our atonement. That if he was not human, he could not atone for our sins. What Hebrews chapter 9 is going to say is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Think all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they sin for the very first time. They realize their nakedness. God has to clothe them in animal skin, and we only think they were clothed to cover their nakedness. Do you understand what took place before they were clothed was sacrifice. Blood had to be shed because there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. That's the only way we can be covered. And so Jesus, giving his life as a human on our behalf, a perfect human, to to satisfy this uh, perfectly and completely, this requirement for the shedding of blood. But here's the other thing about his humanity. As a result of him being human, he can also sympathize with us. He can sympathize and go, you know what? I understand. While he was perfect, he understood the pressures that that bear down on us. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Here's Jesus in the garden. I quoted it a minute ago, but I'll go there and read it so I don't butcher it from the Brock Ashley version. Verse 42 says, Father... If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Think about what Jesus was praying. If there's any way, Father, 
If there's any other way to accomplish this, would you please take this cup? Would you please let it pass? That's something that um, we can relate to as humans, right? Jesus can relate in our humanity. He looked at the cross. He despised it. He looked at his separation from God and said, if there's any other way, and yet not my will but thy will be done because he was obedient. All the pressures, all the pressing down on him, he was still obedient. He continued to persevere. He was pressed and crushed like an olive. If you go to Israel, what you'll find is um, over there they've got these old olive presses. They would actually take the olives and they would uh, first crush them. They would put them uh, into this a cylinder and run a wheel over the top and crush them at once. But then after the crushing, they would take them and they would begin to press what was left over to squeeze even more oil out of the olive. And then for a third time, they would press them one more time to get every complete amount of use out of the olive. Now, why do I bring that up? Because remember to the garden, Jesus going to pray three times to the Father. Three times being pressed and crushed until everything was crushed out of him for our behalf. By the way, um, the word Gethsemane in uh, Hebrew means olive press. He was literally uh, pressed uh, for our behalf there in the place that was called olive press. Now, he understood obedience through his willingness to listen to the will of the Father. The third thing to note is that he was compassionate. He learned through his obedience. He was compassionate towards us. He understood the costs that each of us would have because he experienced it himself. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, this is known as the great kenosis or the great emptying. But here in verse 8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient. He understood. He was compassionate towards us because he was obedient like we are called to be. Finally, he was of a priestly order. This would be important to note for these Hebrews reading this letter because what they knew is, look, to be a priest, you had to be appointed and you had to be through the correct lineage. You had to have the right genealogy. Now, they would have immediately said, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, so therefore he couldn't be a priest who had to be from the line of not just Levi, but through Aaron specifically. And so what is brought up here is that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he had a correct genealogy, more on that to come. But outside of just his genealogy, he also performed the function of a priest in that he was humble in his obedience. He was humble. And if you consider the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies, can you imagine the humility you'd have to have to walk in through that 18-inch thick veil to offer a sacrifice for the people uh, knowing that at at any moment you could just be wiped out. That's it. It's over for me. Incredible humility would have to be uh, had on the part of the high priest. Yet here's Jesus. He, He is humble in his obedience. And this is something I want to point out. If you get anything out of this today, this is simple, and yet it is a key in our Christian walk. And it is that belief will play itself out 
in your life as obedience. Belief will play itself out in your life as obedience. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we can say all we want that we believe. And for me, I spent 35 years of my life, I would have checked any box you would have given me that would have said, yep, Christian, that's me. And yet, uh, a complete lack of obedience is what defined my life. I was not willing to obey. And so, when the question comes, would you have gone uh, to heaven or would you have gone to hell? I sure wouldn't wanted to push it. And how I feel is that uh, all across uh, America for sure, and most likely the world, there are people who sit in churches week in and week out, and they're checking the Jesus box, but their life displays no obedience. And, and what keeps me up at night and what I'm, I'm scared for them about is that I believe uh, people all over are going to bust the gates of hell wide open and never even realize they refused to check the box of obedience in their life. Jesus allowed his faith to be played out, his belief to be played out as obedience. And through suffering, he was actually made perfect, we're told. The, the word could be defined made complete. He was actually completed through his suffering. Now, verse 10, we continue. He was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here, what he's writing to them is, we've got a lot to say about this priestly order that you're so concerned about. That he is a, a priest called in the order of Melchizedek. But because you wouldn't hear, uh, we can't even explain it to you. We'd love to explain and go into all the ways that he fits into this role and how he's fulfilled this, but you will not hear. You won't listen. Now, don't worry. Chapter 6 and 7, we will go into how he is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. That's not really the point, though, of today, where we're at in chapter 5. His point is they wouldn't hear him. They wouldn't understand they become dull of hearing, or the word uh, in some of your translations might be ignorant. They become ignorant, and that sounds rather harsh, but understand the root word of ignorant is ignore. They'd ignored the truth. It had been communicated to them uh, over and over again, yet they continued to ignore what they were hearing. Now, here's the spot that oftentimes uh, we fall into. Um, I'm not just getting anything out of the Bible study. I'm not getting anything out of this teaching. I don't know if any of you have ever said that. I'll admit that I have said that before. Where we read through our Bible and nothing happens. We listen to a teacher, nothing takes place. I would ask you this and challenge you. Have you grown dull of hearing? Because here's the reality. Um, God loves us enough that he will not give you the next thing until you hear the first thing. That's another one of these very simple and yet true things that will play out in your life. That as a loving father, he will not give you the second step until you have done the first step. And so while we continue to delay and delay and put it off, he's not going to give you the next thing until you've done the first thing. And so the question is, if you've grown dull of hearing, if you've fallen into that spot, what I would encourage you is what is the last thing he gave you? What was the last thing that he showed you through his word, through someone that spoke it into your life? And here's the follow-up. Did you do it? 
If you did not, go back to that thing, pray through that, Lord, what is it you would have me to do? How would you have me to do it? And then, here it is, do it. (laughs) Do it. Do that thing that he's called you into. Be obedient to that, and you will get the next thing to accomplish. Lastly, on that point, um, I will show you uh, an obedient person, and you will also see a happy person. The happy is the one who follows after the will of God. That we find ourselves so upset in so much turmoil, and yet we've gone completely away from whatever his will is in our life. So show me an obedient person, I'll show you a happy one. Now, continuing on in verse 11, for though by this time, verse 12, excuse me, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So they had grown lazy in their relationship with God. And as a result, they had regressed spiritually. What the writer is saying is, at this point in time, you've been here enough, you should actually be teaching, but you're at the point where you still need taught. Now, immediately red flags are going to go up, but wait a minute, I'm not called to be a teacher. That's not my calling. But I want to encourage you that I believe that all of us are actually called to teach someone. Maybe it doesn't look like this, sitting up in front of a room full of people, but we are all called and given someone to speak into their life, someone to teach. And if you would submit yourself to spending time in the Word, what I have found is, more often than not, wherever God takes me in Scripture, whatever my reading is, He'll show me something. I'll be blown away. It's something I can apply in my life. And then amazingly, what happens is, someone will be put into my life that that also speaks to them and their situation. And so as God brings these people into your life, and you go, wow, that thing applied to me, but it also applies here. I'm going to speak this into their life. Guess what? You're a teacher. You've just taught them. You've just instructed them in the Word of God. And so this is exactly what we're talking about, that you've been given the opportunity to actually be a teacher in someone else's life, to speak into their life. Now, verse 13 For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And so what he is communicating is for those who only partake, they're only drinking the milk. There's nothing advanced. There's no meat in their diet. They're not growing spiritually uh, mature. Now, I do want to point out that spiritual maturity is not a function of time. That often we see people that are older, have been in church for a long time ago, they must be spiritually mature. It's very possible that they are. It's likely they are, but it's not a direct correlation that spiritual maturity is actually a function of your diet, not how long you've been here. It's a function of what are you eating? What are you consuming? And so when we go to a little uh, baby's birthday party and they're one year old and they've got the bottle and you look at them, they're so cute, aren't they? I mean, they got their bottle and the milk and everything they do is cute. Have you notice that about babies? I mean, the noises they make, I mean, they could be sitting there drinking their milk and next thing you know, a little poot poot and you're like, oh, even that's cute. You know, they've just made a stinky. It's so cute. And yet, uh, if we see an older child. If you go to a 16 or 17 year old birthday party and they've still got the bottle, 
um, it, you're not thinking it is nearly as cute. The little poot-poot isn't nearly as funny anymore. And immediately your question is, has something gone wrong? Is there some kind of developmental issue? But, but what if I shared with you it was their own choice? They've intentionally chosen to stay on the bottle. And for the parents, they've said, you know what? I think they're fine. They really enjoy milk. We just let them keep doing it. There's no need to challenge them to get out of that spot that they're in. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is communicating. You've intentionally continued to drink milk and milk only. You've been malnourished. So whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the one who has chosen to be in that spot or the one who is teaching them in that spot? And I would say yes is the answer. That there is a responsibility. See that catch? I'm like a ninja. Wow. It's the responsibility of the pastor to be able to provide a healthy diet, to provide milk, or to provide meat to go along with the milk. The milk is great to wash down the meat, right? It, it, it's all good. And what I mean by that is we should be, uh, as a church, sort of like the Golden Corral, all right? The spiritual buffet, the best buffet in the USA. You should be able to come in and at any point in time, find something that is good for you to be able to eat. There's some of you that love some fried chicken. You're going for the chicken fried steak. Put a little gravy on it, some taters, right? Like that sounds really good to you. You're in that spot. There are others of you. You're like my kids. You're waiting and holding out for ice cream, right? If I can get to that ice cream bar, that's where I'm headed. But we need to provide a little something for everyone. Yet the encouragement here is that if you only stick with the ice cream bar, you're never going to grow. You've got to eat a diet that consists of some meat. There's got to be a challenge in there somewhere. And so for me, it would be easier in a lot of ways to just say, here's the milk, here's the milk, here's the milk, because I don't want to challenge you. I don't want to push you. I'd rather just stay in my lane. I'd rather not teach you something that makes me uncomfortable. Thank God that he has given us a way to work through Scripture, though, methodically, and challenge you and challenge me as well so that we can actually grow together. And if we just stay in our little denominational bubble that many of us grew up in, where this is the way it's presented, this is the way it's done, guess what? We will become malnourished. We'll become unskilled. We'll become those who are not flexible. One of my favorite Pastor Chuck quotes was, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Be willing to be flexible. Consider a new idea. Be willing to be challenged in your own life. How can I apply Scripture in this area? 4, verse 14, Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What you see is that a good diet leads to good discernment. To be able to discern and tell good from evil, yes from no, bad from fantastic. We have to be able to have a good diet in order to tell these things. But wait a minute, surely I can just tell. I mean, is it that hard to tell good from bad? Is it that hard to tell if something is evil or not? Here's what Paul communicated in Romans chapter 1 to a society that was falling apart rapidly. 
he says in verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And being filled with all unrighteousness, and sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, and murder, and strife, and deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who in verse 32, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. As things get darker, and they're going to continue to get darker, it's going to become harder and harder to discern good from evil if you don't use the word of God as a lens. Because what happens is, um, good gets to be called bad. Bad gets to be called good. And in fact, bad even gets promoted as good. It gets accepted and brought into our society. And so how can we discern if we don't hold it up to Scripture? We therefore have reason of use. We have to hold it up to God's Word. And so here are just a few things to consider. First of all, be in the Word daily. Have a good daily diet of God's Word. This is not a have to. This is a get to Christianity. I get to feed every day. None of you would expect to go and eat once a week. Only on Sunday mornings do I eat and then be healthy. It doesn't make sense for our physical bodies, and the same is true for our spiritual bodies. You can't just merely consume Scripture once a week and expect to continue to grow. And so being in the Word daily and, and praying through so we can gain understanding. All of you, I know, want to have understanding. The second thing to point out is to seek God's wisdom through His Word. I mean to literally, as you're reading the Word, say, God, show me your wisdom. God, I need wisdom in this area. It's okay to say it out loud. Maybe not in the middle of Walmart, but I go for it there too. I mean, just say it out loud. God, I need your wisdom in this area. And what I have found is 100% of the time when I pray for God to give me wisdom in an area and I'm willing to wait for him to guide me, that's key. He will give it to me. He's a good father. He doesn't want me to be tripped up and fooled. He's not waiting around the corner to go, ha ha, told you, knew you were going to mess that up. No, he wants to give wisdom. He wants to give direction. Ask for God to show you. But it goes along with this last part. And that is, when he shows you what to do, submit to it. This is the hardest piece. Am I willing to submit my life to whatever he gives me? Am I willing to lay my own will down and say, God, your will be done. Will I be obedient? And I think most of the time, this is where we get tripped up. We'll spend time in scripture We'll read, we'll ask God for wisdom, and then he'll give it to us. We'll be like, whoa, we'll exercise what I call a meatloaf faith. It goes something like this. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, no, right? Like we go, I'd do anything for you, Jesus, but not that. That's crazy. I'm not going to do that. 
We don't exercise true faith. Submitting our life down and going, yes, I will be obedient to this thing. And I'll trust you to take care of me through the whole process. It comes down to as simple as the old hymn we learned growing up in church. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you um, for what is sometimes a spiritual kick in the pants. (laughs) Lord, thank you for loving us enough to be a good father who is willing to encourage us, to exhort us, to bring discipline so that we can be your disciples, Lord. Thank you for having so much grace on us that after time and time again and not getting it right, you let us continue to take the pass-fail test on step one until we pass it. Lord, I'm so thankful for your long-suffering in my life. Father, I pray for each of us in this room that we'd be able to have the courage to take you at your word, to ask you for guidance and wisdom, and then when you show it to us, Lord, that we'd have the belief, the faith, even if it's just a mustard seed, to say, yeah, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to submit my life. I'm going to say, yes, Lord, what do you have for me next? Father, thank you so much for the way you continue to guide and direct In Jesus' name, amen.